All right, we didn't quite get out of Genesis chapter 24 last time, so if you're not there yet, if you want to make your way there with me. Genesis 24 was this lengthy narrative we saw basically where uh, Abraham, as a good father, recognizing the need of his son Isaac to ultimately have a spouse, to have a mate, that Isaac didn't have a bride, and of course recognizing that God's promise was upon Isaac's life, and so that there might be the multiplication of the uh, seed through Abraham's line. Uh, Abraham takes it upon himself as a good and a loving father to begin to make arrangements to go out and to find a bride uh, for his son Isaac. And it seems, uh, as we saw last time, that Isaac, uh, respecting his father and in full kind of cooperation with the process, we find him, we'll see at the end of the chapter, uh, he's out meditating in a field, it seems, seeking the Lord, and his focus is on the Lord, and he's kind of just trusting that the Lord is going to orchestrate in his way, in his timing, uh, bringing the right individual uh, into his life for a partnership. And of course, it's just this beautiful love story, Genesis 24. If you weren't here with us last week or you're not familiar with it, just a, a great chapter. It gives this beautiful love story. If you're a single person, one of the ways that uh, I think God works to uh, prepare us to ultimately find the partner that God has for us rather than being out on the hunt and the prowl, just kind of waiting on the Lord, seeking the Lord and trusting the Father can make arrangements that he can find the right person for us and bring them into our life. And of course, this beautiful illustration, this chapter two of how it's a picture uh, of the Father in heaven sending out the servant, the Holy Spirit, to go and to find a bride for his son, Jesus Christ, and how the Father does that. He sends the Spirit out into the world to uh, prepare and to find a bride to unite with his son. And it's just, of course, a beautiful typology as well of those things. And lots of great examples, as we saw as well, of what it means to follow the leading of the Lord as this servant, remember, is sent out by Abraham uh, and really goes out to fulfill the will of God. And we saw multiple different things that are really good components in regards to how do we follow God's leading for our life. When God sends us out to do something uh, and ultimately intends something to be accomplished, what are important aspects of how we follow the Lord's leading? And we pointed out a number of them to you last time. But basically the story in its synopsis, remember the servant is given this commission to go back to the homeland of Abraham and he is told by Abraham, by his master, listen, go and find a wife for my son. Do not take a woman from this land among the ungodly pagan women. I don't want a worldly woman for my son that's going to uh, lead him into idolatry and the worship of other things. I want you to get the right woman. He says, go back to the homeland. Don't take him there. I don't want you to take him out of the place of God's plan and God's promise. So don't take him away either. He needs to stay right in the center of God's will for his life. And he says, well, what if she won't come back with me? Don't worry. He says, I've been following the Lord for years. When God's doing something, he'll take care of it. You just go and trust the Lord to go before you and to make the arrangements. And we saw as he traveled that long journey, 500 or so miles. Remember, he shows up, he prays, he seeks the Lord as he's at the well there in the territory of Abraham's family trying to kind of get into the right place where possibly the plan of the Lord might unfold. He's kind of just knocking on doors. He prays, Lord, please bless me, give me success, and I pray the woman that you intend for Isaac, 
would come out and when I asked for a drink of water that she would be this dear, servant-hearted, generous young lady and she would say, hey, not just can you have a drink, but let me bless you and serve you and let me provide water for all of your ten camels and lo and behold, uh, the first girl that comes out, Rebecca, not only attractive, this young, pure woman, but very generous, kind-hearted, and exactly what he prays specifically, boom, God unfolds, answers his prayer while he's still in the midst of speaking. And as he's talking to her about the son, Isaac, and sharing about his journey to her, uh, he recognizes in the conversation that this is actually the uh, granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. And he's astonished. Just, I can't believe this. Being on the way, the Lord led me. I just started moving in the right direction. God put all the pieces together. And as I was in the right general direction, God just kind of narrowed it down and refined the process, led me to this gal. He goes back to the house, meets the family members, talks with her father and her eldest brother and he's explaining the whole story to them and as they heard the whole story remember they say well this is obvious the thing comes from the lord and they make an agreement for her to become the bride of isaac to leave the family to go back to the homeland of where isaac was to be united to this man as her husband whom she's never met before complete journey and venture of faith but she recognizes the thing is of the lord this is the man god's intended for her to be with but yet, remember, they were trying to delay as we left off, saying, but, but why don't you wait about 10 days? And they said, and he said, no, 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 if the Lord is in this, don't hinder me, don't delay, because if you, we go back and think about it too long, we're going to reconsider the whole thing. And a lot of times we do that too, you know, something's of the Lord, but then we start thinking about it more than we should, and fears and logic and all these things kind of overwhelm us. Let's ask the young lady if she's willing to go, Let's let her go on her way. And they ask her personally. She said at the end of verse 58, I will go. So again, just like us having to be personally responsible for our decision, whether or not we're going to become the bride of Christ, whether we're going to accept Jesus Christ in the same way. The proposals made to us. Here's the facts. You're a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. Uh, he wants to have a loving, intimate relationship with you. It means you're going to have to leave behind your past and enter into a relationship with him and accept him. And you have to personally decide. And we, just like Rebecca here, have to decide either I will or I will not. And she decides that she will and that point, we're now finding her on her way back to meet this man, Isaac, whom she's never seen. All she has heard about is his glory and this opportunity to become his wife, but yet she's never seen him with her eyes. And can you imagine the journey back 500 miles with this servant going back to meet this man whom she has already kind of made a commitment to in her heart, but she's never seen him with her eyes? Much like you and I, you know, we, we make this commitment to Jesus by faith, we journey in faith, and, and we've never seen him with our eyes, but Peter says, you know, having not seen him yet, you love him. 
And one day we'll receive the full experience of our salvation when we see him face to face. And, and on the way back, how she would be asking questions. Well, what does he look like? I mean, is he, is he at least attractive? Is he tall, dark, and handsome? Is he, and asking all these questions and, you know, tell me more about, you know, what's his personality like and what does he like and doesn't he like? And she's probably asking, and you can imagine the servant is probably answering her questions and telling stories much like for you and I. We accept Jesus Christ, we embrace him by faith, and then what happens? All along the journey until we actually meet the Lord, and one day 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we're going to hear a trumpet blast, and it says we're going to what? Be caught up, and it says to meet the Lord, like they're about to meet, in the air. But prior to that time, what happens? The Holy Spirit, the servant who's given to us as the agent of God's Spirit with us, the Holy Spirit's revealing to us more about Jesus. And as I walk with Jesus, I'm getting to know more about Jesus. And, and I'm reading the Word, and I'm seeking, and, and it's the Spirit of God who's revealing what Jesus is like to us, much like probably this dialogue was happening between Rebecca and the servant as they were heading back now to that land to go meet Isaac. Look with me in verse 61. It says, Rebecca and her maids arose they rode on the camels, they followed the man, so they're now on this trip back. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Verse 62, now Isaac came from the way of Ber Lehay Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And again, Ber Lehay Roy is basically a term which means the, uh, the well of the God who sees, or the well of vision. And it seems this was where Isaac kind of uh, took a liking to to hang out in this territory. This well was named back in Genesis 16, remember, by Hagar when she was there and the Lord appeared to her and saw her in her distress. And interesting, beautiful place we find this young man waiting for his bride that his father was going to go and get for him. He didn't go chasing for a bride. He waited for his father to make the arrangements and the bride to be brought to him. And he's hanging out at the well of vision. Uh, he's just there, kind of just waiting in the south. Verse 63 tells us, And Isaac went out to meditate, it says, in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. So gives you kind of a picture of what kind of man Isaac was. Again, he j just seems to be a very contemplative man. He, he, was, he seems to be a, just a, a very very deep person, tells us he's out meditating in the field in the evening and meditating upon what? You know, I don't think kind of the bizarre Eastern idea we have of, you know, meditation, um, you know, or something like that. He's meditating upon the Lord. The indication here, it's a term that infers that he was out there praying. He was seeking God. It seems that he liked to just get away. He liked to, at times, to just go and be alone with Jehovah God, the God of his father Abraham, and just to meditate and to think upon God, to get to know God in a deeper way. And he's out just praying and seeking the Lord. Uh, and as he's there in the fields, spending time with God, it's at that point it says that he then just lifts his eyes and looks, and there are the camels coming doing what? Bringing his bride to him into his life. And again, just a beautiful picture. If you're single, you know, if you're a young person and you're waiting, look, Isaac sets a great example here for this uh, kind of paradigm that happens in all of our lives as we're waiting for the spouse God brings into our life. What's he doing? You see a picture of him waiting. He's out in the fields. 
He's occupied in the fields. He's seeking God. He's spending time with God. He's not hunting and, and chasing. He's letting his father take care of things. And, and the father is making arrangements, picking, preparing the right bride for him, knows exactly who he needs and what he needs. And there he is all of a sudden spending time with God. And he opens his eyes and boom, here's the right person being brought right to him right into his life and you know this was my experience is god you know i was just seeking the lord and spending time wasn't even looking and that's exactly what god did he just you know she didn't come out on a camel but but nonetheless you know she and the lord just brought her in you know in fact she actually had a way nicer car than i did it was far from a camel it was quite a nice sports car but nonetheless but you know just seeking the lord and and not looking necessarily but but you know to me it's it's a, it's a Matthew 6:33 thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. And that's what I found was my experience. That as I was just in the field serving the Lord, my thoughts were on God, I was concerned about God, developing my relationship with God, and all of a sudden, I wasn't looking for it and I wasn't even pursuing it. God went took care of it for me and brought into my life at the right hour at the right time exactly who i needed exactly who i was looking for and, and he hasn't changed you know he does this for isaac and it's just a very beautiful example again for god joining mates together so isaac there he is he looks the camels are coming towards him and he knows what this is and and he's you know recognizing what's happening here because he's just been waiting as his father has been making this arrangement for quite some time he had been waiting verse 64 and rebecca lifted her eyes and when she saw Isaac, it says she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us, coming towards them? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil, it says, and she covered herself. Now, interesting, as she looks, she now sees Isaac starting to walk. So she says, oh my gosh, who, who's that? Who, who's that? Who's that man? And the language tells us here in verse 64, it says she dismounted from her camel. <laughs> when you look at the Hebrew, it literally indicates that she fell off her camel. So yeah, it must have been quite a uh, first impression there, you know, whether he just was more than what she imagined or what it was, because she falls off her camel. She recognizes who it is as he says, that's the guy right there. And she can talk about falling all over herself. She just plops off the camel and then it says right away she took a veil and covered herself again which was customary that the covering of the the veil over a bride's face was just to indicate modesty it indicated submission and she was purposely doing this to indicate her nature and her intentions again she was a it tells us in the prior chapter uh, prior in the chapter that she was not only godly but she was a virgin she was a pure girl she had been keeping herself for this man and for this day and she wanted to indicate to him um, her modesty her chastity and her desire to be a, a wife to him verse 66 says and the servant told isaac all the things he had done and imagine recounting that story of everything, how it had all happened, and going, and praying, and her coming out to the well, and, and I'm sure he really loved it. Man, this, she watered 10 of my camels, man. You know, you should have seen her. And that whole story of, you know, how servant-hearted and diligent of a worker she was. And imagine the whole testimony. It must have just confirmed in Isaac's heart, oh my goodness, this is the Lord. It probably confirmed it for him, too, as he heard the testimony of how God had put all the 
dots together to bring the puzzle pieces in the line for this moment for them to meet. And verse 67 simply says, And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Interesting. He takes her to become his wife, and he loved her. And again, keep in mind, these two had never met prior to this time. I mean, this is quite amazing. But the fact that they choose to enter marriage, and it says that he loved her, the idea is they, they learned how to love one another, which again is just a beautiful reminder of, in essence, what marriage was about. Again, maybe there was a certainly a dynamic of a romantic attraction and and you know the you know physical you know interest. Again, did she really fall off her donkey because he was so attractive? You know, I, I make that jokingly, but it's certainly that's an important part, I think, of a marital relationship. But these two entered into a commitment. He learned how to love her. They entered into a commitment and they learned how to love one another and stood lifelong marriage partners because of the commitment and the proper understanding of what marriage involved. Chapter 25, verse 1, we now take a turn back to Abraham as we're winding down his life. He's about 140 years old at this point, Abraham. And it says, Abraham again, again, 140 years old, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. So Abraham, being a widow, Sarah has been dead for some time now. Abraham, at this point, desiring companionship, still wanting uh, to have that experience, he now takes a second wife to himself, enters into another relationship for the latter season of his life. And I think it shows me the heart of Abraham. Sarah dies, and when Sarah dies, what does Abraham do? He grieves the loss of his wife, and then in chapter 24... Before we see him, chapter 25, verse 1, taking a wife to himself, what does Abraham do first? Sarah dies, and the first thing he does is he gives attention to his son. And he makes sure that his son has a bride, and that his son is settled, and his son is taken care of. And he puts the focus on his children, and making sure that things are there first, primary and foremost, taken care of. He makes arrangements, and now at this point, Isaac is married He's settled, and at this point, Isaac, no doubt, again, there's some attachment that begins to take place. It's a new season for Isaac and his spouse. There's going to be some separation. There's a measure of loneliness now as Isaac is departing, no doubt, leaving the nest. And at this point, Abraham says, okay, Sarah's gone. Isaac's married. I'm alone. I still desire companionship. And now, very unselfishly, after taking care of his child first, he says, you know what? I want to remarry. And it says that he takes to himself Keturah, another wife for the second season of his life as a widow. And verse 2 tells us, And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, who become the people of the Midianites, Ishbak, and Shua. So basically, this second marriage to Keturah results in six more children. Now, again, Abraham's 140 years old. If you remember, he did not have the child of promise, Isaac, until he was 100. Remember, he and Sarah were barren, meaning that all of their reproductive capacities were dried up. They, they weren't working, and God miraculously healed. God healed the reproductive capacities, apparently completely rejuvenated 
all of their reproductive organs in such a way whereby they could conceive a child naturally. And apparently when God fixes things, God fixes things. You understand what I'm saying? When God heals, he heals completely because Abraham not only has Isaac, but he goes on to give conception and birth to six more children in the latter stages of his life with this second marriage that he enters into as he and Keturah enjoy having six more children together. And the names of them are given to us in verse 2. And then verse uh, 3 down through verse uh, 5 begins to give us some of the names of their children. So these are then become grandchildren uh, to the second generation for Abraham. And I won't slaughter all of those names there for you. In verse 5, and Abraham, notice, gave all that he had, however, to Isaac. Again, he had these other children, but he realized that Isaac was the heir, that Isaac was the one to inherit the promise of God. Uh, so he became the heir of all things. He gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham, notice, again, being a good father, he also gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them, that is his other children besides Isaac, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Again, probably seeking to make sure so there was an antagonism between them and he needed Isaac to remain in the land of promise and didn't want anything to interrupt uh, the, the promises of God being inherited by Isaac. So he creates a measure of separation. He, he gives gifts, it says, to his other children, no doubt giving them flocks and, uh, and, and animals and herds to try and give them sort of a, a, a good opportunity to have a jump start, again, a good and generous father. He's a wealthy man. He has the means to be able to do it. So he kind of gives them the ability to get a start off and he kind of you know, nudges them out of the nest. He sends uh, you know, them toward the east, which is interesting as the other sons went to the east because to the east is the very oil-rich lands. If you look where Israel is and to the east of Israel is where the very wealthy oil reserves are of you know, Saudi Arabia and areas like that. So again, th these sons didn't make out too bad. You know, and Abraham sends them in that direction. He gave all the promises and the blessings to Isaac, but uh, these other sons went to the east, but they didn't fare too bad going in that direction. And verse 7, the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, were 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, a man full of years and was gathered to his people. So interesting term the Bible uses regarding the death of this man that he was gathered to his people no doubt a reference to that place where those believing dead were waiting for the messianic promise uh, of the messiah who was to come that abraham died physically but notice his life did not cease notice though physical death happened he, he continued on it says he was gathered to his people uh, as he entered into that eternal dimension waiting there, uh, no doubt in that place ultimately referred to in Luke 16 as Abraham's bosom, where the you know believing dead were awaiting the fulfillment of the messianic plan that Jesus Christ would come and accomplish as the Savior before they would enter into glory with him. Verse 9, And the sons of Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham, notice, in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of 
Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham had purchased. We saw that a few chapters back. He purchased that field from the sons of Heth, and there Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. So interesting. Isaac and Ishmael now, the death of their father happens. They come back together to make the burial arrangements. Abraham, remember, had purchased that field when Sarah died, and no doubt wanting to be buried with the love of his life. The sons come together. They make the arrangements. They bury him in the plot of ground which he had purchased prior. And interesting to see verse 9, we now see Isaac and Ishmael for the first time, it seems. Again, we're not given any other indication coming back together after a great measure of division and separation happened between them. Remember at the weaning of Isaac, uh, it tells us that Ishmael, as a young teenage boy, was mocking his younger brother. And remember, he was despising and mocking and scoffing at young Isaac. And at that point was when he was sent away. So they left kind of because of some family tensions and problems. And there was this kind of severance of relationship and interesting, look what brings them back together, the death of their father. And how many times this, a lot of times, can be the case where family members will have fights and problems and division and then the death of mom or the death of dad or some pertinent loved one, somebody dies. And, and it takes that, unfortunately, to be the kind of the catalyst that God uses to, to bring family members back together and, and maybe heal some wounds and make them kind of come back and... Uh, and have some level of relationship again. So Isaac and Ishmael, they come together for the burial of their father and put aside past grievances to take care of what needed to be done respectfully. Verse 11, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham, notice, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lehei Roy. So after the death of Abraham, as God determined the blessing, the promises of God, the covenant that God made to Abraham for the nation of Israel, it transfers to his son Isaac, the son of promise. And we read now after Abraham's death that God's hand of blessing begins to really rest upon Isaac, his son. God blessed his son Isaac. Now verse 12 down through verse 18 we get this insertion of a quick genealogy of Ishmael. Really, for nothing other than record purposes, the Holy Spirit doesn't give us really any other descriptions or information about Ishmael's life or his family line. Again, why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to keep our focus on the line of the Messiah. Uh, and, and that would be through the line of Isaac. But here in verse 12, we get this record of the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar... The Egyptian bore to him. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nabajoth, and Kadar, and Abdeel, and Misbam. And I'm not going to humiliate myself with the rest of those names there. They're tongue twisters. But basically these are, says, the twelve sons were 12 princes, verse 16, according to their nations. And remember, God had told Abraham that he wasn't going to cast aside Ishmael altogether, that he was going to still bless Ishmael's sons and descendants, and that they weren't God's chosen people in the sense of how the nation of Israel are God's chosen people. But God loved 
the descendants of Ishmael, and many of whom have become the, the uh, progenitors of the Arab nations and the Arab peoples out of these 12 princes of Ishmael. And it tells us regarding Ishmael that the years of his life, verse 17, were 137 years, and he breathed his last and died, interesting, and was gathered to his people, which same term with Abraham could indicate that he did have a belief in Jehovah God, because the Holy Spirit uses the same terminology to refer to Ishmael at his death as Abraham at his death. So it's very possible that he did have a faith in the one true Jehovah God at this point, that he did believe in the God of Abraham at that point of his death. It just simply tells us that the end of his life, he as well died and was gathered to his people. And we really don't have any record or historical information. There's very little regarding what happens with these descendants of Ishmael. Other than what we have here in the Bible, there's very limited information. We don't really know uh, much more than what's given to us right here in these verses. Verse 19, again, the Holy Spirit brings us back to the line of the Messiah, which again is through the son Isaac, the son of promise. And this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old, we're told, when he had took Rebekah as a wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. In verse 21, it tells us, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, says they were married at 40. It tells us after the result of this intercession and God answering his prayer for his barren wife who couldn't conceive, it seems. She was having trouble with fertility. We're told later in verse 26 that these two sons born were born at 60 years old, which means between the time of being married at 40 and the time of the children being born 60, it means there was about maybe a 20-year gap where there was this attempt to have children, there were struggles with infertility, there was barrenness, and they were, they were struggling with being fruitful and conceiving to the point where Isaac, the husband, notice, is driven, it says, to plead for his wife in her barrenness. Uh, and Just a beautiful indication of this husband. And again, What's he doing? He's praying and he's interceding for his wife. There's a struggle in his wife's life. There's a, there, there's a barrenness. There's, there's a difficulty. And it says that he was interceding for her. He was praying for his wife, asking that God would touch her, no doubt believing God was able to. Sarah had the same problem as well. So he knows that the God of his father Abraham is a God who can heal is a God who honors his promises and he knows the promise of God is upon his life. And God, even though circumstantially, nothing's happening and it seems impossible. This was the case with my father and mother and God, you honored your word to them. You came through and the timing may not have been what they intended, but God, you have to bless us with a child. Lord, this is a part of your plan. And it doesn't look like it's happening. There's no outward evidence. There's no fruitfulness. But Lord, I know this is your will. I know this is your plan. I have your word. And with the word of God and promise of God, he begins to just pray 
and plead with the Lord. Which is an interesting thing because it says God hears his prayer, God heals and she conceives. But notice, the promise of God is there, but yet still prayer and interceding and pleading with God to answer the promise was somehow a part of the cooperation between what God does and what we do in relationship with God. And see, yeah, we have the promises of God, but just because we have the promises of God does not mean that there's not at times a part that we are to participate in where why we pray and seek the Lord about things. For example, you know, maybe somebody is barren spiritually and there's no, there's no life spiritually and there's no indication that, that they're going to experience spiritual life, but yet we have promises in the Bible that tell us it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Two different Bible promises regarding the same thing. And see, those Bible promises exist but I think there's a part to play in our lives for intercession, whether it's our spouse or our child or a friend, to plead, Lord, it's your promise to save people. So, Lord, I'm going to plead and I'm going to ask that you would just honor your promise, that you would fulfill your word. And God's given to us promises in our life, but there are times where as we're waiting and we may not see things happening, somehow God uses those things in relationship development with us too, whereby it causes us to seek God and to develop in relationship with God where we pray and God would you heal or God would you help or God would you act or work in this way. And, and it becomes a part of the relational dynamic that happens between us and the Lord. And Isaac here, he pleads with God. And so the idea is, is passionate, seeking the Lord for something because his wife's barrenness and the Lord granted his plea. Beautiful. God heard his prayer and persistent, continual, regular prayer, and God ultimately heard it. Again, James chapter 5 tells us that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Effective, fervent prayer, continually seeking God. Again, that persistence, persevering in prayer, pleading with the Lord. Maybe it's something God's leading you to do in your own life right now, to plead with the Lord and to wait for God to grant your plea. And here his wife now conceives. And notice God doesn't just grant her a child. God grants her multiple children. So a lot of times when we ask the Lord. Not only does he do what we need or what we're asking for. But God just has a nature about him where he does above and beyond. You know it tells us in Ephesians 3 that he does exceedingly abundantly above and beyond. What we ask or think through his power that works in our life. And. He asked for a child. Lo and behold, we're going to see he's going to actually get more than a child. He's going to get twins. Verse 22 says that she conceived and then the children, plural, notice, struggled within her. So she's having more than normal uh, you know, labor experiences with a, you know, pregnancy type movement. These two children are struggling together within her so much so that she recognized if all is well, she says that... Why am I like this? You know, I've never been pregnant before, but this seems to be way different than just typical uh, pregnancy movement inside of uh, my belly here. If everything's okay, why am I like this? And notice, so she went to inquire of the Lord. Again, God uses something happening in her own body, something that's happening in her life, an experience she is going through, and what does it do? As she's experiencing something, it prompts her to pray. 
You know, I'm convinced that God uses things in our lives many times to prompt us to pray, to have deeper relationship with him, to have fellowship with him, to get to know him on a deeper level in a personal way. Just like Isaac pleaded for his wife as the promise of God, he was waiting for it. Now she's experiencing some challenges in her pregnancy, and it says that she she says, i got to resolve this. Nobody else can give me answers. i got to go to God. And so she goes to God and she inquires, Lord, if everything is okay, what is going on? What's happening? I don't understand what's going on. So she went to inquire of the Lord and picture this. God, if everything's okay with this pregnancy, why am I like this? And the Lord said, oh, it's simple. Two nations are in your womb. What? Nations? I just wanted a kid. You know, two nations are in your womb. Well, that's, no wonder she's having problems inside. You know, It's more than what anybody signs up for. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So again, God reveals to her, interesting what? Rebecca, you're going to have twins. Interesting, prior to ultrasound or anything else, God speaks to her and tells her something about the child she is going to give birth to, actually the children she's going to give birth to. No ultrasound, but what does she have? She has a relationship with God. And apart from modern technology, anything else, God speaks to her and God tells her something. He doesn't just tell her that she has twins in her womb. He actually gives to her a prophecy about these two children and this struggle that's taking place as they're, it seems, wrestling and there's some antagonism taking place inside of her. And it was just sort of symbolic of ultimately what would happen as these two grew up and they would be fathers of separate nations. The, uh, the, the nation of Israel, Jacob, which would be the father of the Jews, and then, of course, Esau, who would become the, the father of the people of the Edomites. And he says, two different children are in your womb. They're going to be separated, and he says one people will be stronger than the other, and this is interesting, this prophecy, the older shall serve the younger. That was very different than how things typically happen. Typically, the firstborn received not only the birthright and everything else, but typically the firstborn culturally, and I emphasize culturally, the firstborn was in charge, and the younger siblings served the firstborn. The younger always serve the older. But notice God says, listen, when I do things, I don't always do them culturally. I don't always care about being politically correct. And God says, I don't care the way the culture does things. I do things according to my divine sovereignty. And God says, my hand, my plan, my calling is actually on the younger son. And therefore, the younger son will be the one who's in the priority position and the older will serve the younger and God, by divine election, just determines, by his sovereign choice, where things will be as they unfold in these two young men's lives. And God, many a times, we see this in the scripture, God overrides the cultural norms. Again, David was the youngest of all the sons, and God chose David to be the king over Israel, and he bypassed the other sons because he, he determined to choose David. And, and the Lord does this. Many times, the way the world does things, God doesn't work the same way. Many times God will reverse the order or do things differently. And it's important to be sensitive to that. Again, because God is sovereign. And in fact, you remember in Romans chapter 9 and on there, 
uh, Paul uses this example of God choosing for Esau to serve Jacob and this idea of the older serving the younger to point out and to give a teaching on divine election and how God is sovereign and that God chooses and determines as he will. And why? Because God has foreknowledge. And we need to remember, the Bible teaches both free will and, and personal responsibility, but the Bible does teach simultaneously like two parallel lines running together next to one another. The Bible also teaches divine election, that God chooses, that God determines. The two aren't contradictory. They're coexisting. Again, our struggles, we can't always figure them out. What do you mean I'm chosen, but I also have to choose in regards to salvation? What does it mean I'm chosen before the foundation of the world, but yet I have to choose to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ? And because we can't figure it out in our minds, the problem is we want to try to fly to this extreme or fly to that extreme and explain one or the other truth away when the reality is the Bible teaches both. And just because we can't grasp it in our finite mind doesn't mean that one or the other is somehow out of balance. God teaches both, that he chooses who will be saved, yet we also must choose and we are responsible for what we do in regarding our receiving of Jesus Christ or our rejecting of Jesus Christ. But here is the one example from the Old Testament Paul uses to teach God's divine election, how God reversed the order and chose for Jacob to be the son who ultimately would be the father of the nation of Israel here. And he uses this example of these two who were struggling in the womb. And again, as you look at Esau and you look at Jacob, it tells us they were struggling inside of her. And, and these two are going to be polar opposites in their disposition, in the outflow of their life. And, and, and they become a very fitting picture of what? A picture of the flesh and the spirit. And when you look at Esau and you look at Jacob and how they're struggling against one another here, they're contrary, they're, they're, they're wrestling and they're, they're struggling it's a picture of when the work of God is happening in our life, there's a struggle that goes on. And when we get saved, a new battle begins. This battle begins between the flesh and the spirit, where now the spirit of God enters into our life. And now there's this struggle that goes on inside of us. You know, if you, you feel at times like there's, you know, two things or two individuals wrestling inside of you, well, that's a good thing. Spurgeon said, dead men don't wrestle. So if, if you're wrestling, that's a good thing. That indicates that you are saved and that the spirit, if you're not wrestling with your sin nature, that's not a good thing. But if you're struggling and wrestling within between the old you and the old nature and those old habits and old and, and the new person that's in you because you've been made alive in Jesus and now there's a new nature and the spirit of God saying, no, I want you to live this way and talk this way and act this way. And you're finding that tension and that battle. Guess what? That's an indication that God is at work because it tells us in Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two, it says, are contrary to one another. There's this struggle, just like these two individuals are a very good picture of that here as they're uh, inside the womb of their mother, these two separate nations. Verse 24 says, and when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, Indeed, notice, there were twins, it says, in her womb. And the first came out red, 
And he was like, literally, he says, like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which basically means hairy. That's creative, huh? You know, it's a, man, this kid is red. And again, was he red from just the birth process? You know, if you've seen kids when they first come out, usually they're all pretty red, whether it's just the skin tone or, you know, from the, uh, the blood and the fluids and so forth. But this kid, he didn't just have a little bit of hair on his head. Because remember, later on when they go to deceive uh, Isaac regarding Jacob pretending to be Esau, remember he literally goes and his mom says, here, put goat skins on your arms. And so this guy was, you know, I mean, he was like a wildebeest or something. I mean, he just, was just, he just comes out and he just, talk about testosterone uh, on steroids for this guy. He comes out just, oh, so they say, what should we name him? Harry. That's, he's red and hairy. That's, Harry, that's just what he should be. So his name, Esau, means Harry, and afterward, his brother came out, and it says his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, the Hebrew is literally Yaakov, or it literally means heel catcher. That's creative, too. Wait, what's, he's coming out, he's, as they're coming out, being born, he, it seems like a little hand must come out, and he grabs hold of his brother's heel as you know, Esau's being born first. Uh, and they said, well, what's your name? Well, let's call him heel catcher. You know, he's holding his brother's heel. So, uh, but of course, we know this becomes very picturesque, Jacob, heel catcher, of exactly the disposition that Jacob ended up having. Because Jacob was like that, you know, supplanter or heel catcher. You know, you the idea, that's what he's trying to do, trying to grab his brother's heel to trip him up. And, and, and hey, let me pull you out of the way so I can get in front of you. And this was Jacob's personality. It was very fitting how that became a, a picture, a foreshadowing of this guy's personality because Jacob, though he loved God, and he wasn't a worldly carnal man who lived after the flesh like his brother, but Jacob was a conniver. He was a conniver. He was one of those guys who was always trying to trip somebody up and, and pull them back so he could get in front of them to get what he wanted for him. This is just kind of his disposition. So the two are born... And it tells us they were born at 60 years old for Isaac, and the boys grew, verse 27. Notice Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. So he was, you know, a guy that shopped at Cabela's and just liked to hunt and do all that. He just was a manly type man. He enjoyed the outdoors. He liked to hunt. Jacob, however, it says, was a mild man dwelling in the tent. So Again, two different dispositions, completely opposite. Same gene pool. They're not identical twins, but they're twins. Same gene pool, but very different in their nature. Esau, he's an outdoorsman. He's, you know, he's adventurous. He likes to chase things down out in the field and be on the run. And Jacob, he was quite the opposite. He was more of a homebody. It says he enjoyed dwelling among the tents, which doesn't mean that Again, don't get the idea that he's like this mama's boy. I hate when this picture is painted of you know Jacob like he's a mama's boy. Around the tents meant that he was maintaining the flocks and the herds and helping out with that. That term there, a mild man, really kind of a bad translation from the Hebrew. The word there, mild, literally is translated multiple times, complete or blameless or mature. It's the same term that's used in Job 1 where it says that Job was a blameless man. It really is indicating that Jacob, yes, he didn't have the same disposition as his brother, but he did have an inclination towards 
the things of God. He had a heart for things that were spiritual. He had his weaknesses, but he was a complete man in the sense that he understood the promises of God and the ways of God, and he had a heart that was after those things, where his brother seemed to have a totally different desire for the way that he lived his life. Verse 28, here's a oopsie on the parents' part. It says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So it seems there was a little uh, parental favoritism that went on there that can happen, and it causes some real family problems in the chapters ahead. So a good caution to all of us as parents, you know, this uh, kind of you know favoritism with one child because they connected with them became a real problematic thing in the family later on. In verse 29, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary, exhausted. I've been out there hunting. I haven't caught anything. But Jacob said to him, okay, sell me your birthright first. <laughs> You're hungry. You want something to eat. Sell me your birthright. Now, again, here's where we see the personalities of these two playing out. The birthright, please understand, was basically a blessing and a responsibility. The birthright was something whereby you received a double portion of the father's inheritance, and typically the birthright went to the firstborn son. That's the way it always played out. Again, God's going to reverse the order. He's already prophesied this. And the family probably has a sense of this. And there's some level of awareness, I think, probably among the kids and the parents that this prophecy was given at their birth. But culturally, there's going to be the struggle between the way culture does things and what God has said is going to happen. But here we see this unfolding now. Again, the birthright typically went to the firstborn son. He received a double portion of all the family's inheritance. So whatever the other children got, the firstborn son got double. But that wasn't just to greedily enrich him. The birthright also involved a great responsibility. The birthright also meant that you had the privilege and the responsibility to become the patriarchal leader when dad died, which meant that you assumed all the responsibilities that dad had upon his shoulders to make sure the family was taken care of, to be responsible, most importantly, to be the spiritual priest and the spiritual leader of the home. So it was a great responsibility, It was a, and therefore the double portion was given to be able to really execute that responsibility of being the spiritual priest of the home and taking care of the family once dad died. And here you find Jacob wanting that birthright, because why? Because Jacob's a man who, he desires the things of God. Now, he's going about it a little bit of kind of a manipulative way, and he should have just waited for God to give it to him, instead of trying to get it for himself, and God would have given it to him. And this is where Jacob, I think, needs to be. He's trying to get something that God's going to give to him anyway, and we need to be careful. A lot of times, you know, God's going to give you something, but don't go trying to get it your own way. Don't try and make it happen through your own fleshly endeavors and, and manipulation and little tricks. No, you wait on God. Wait on God, and God will give it to you because it belongs to you. And, and, and Jacob here is, in essence, he's just trying to force things too prematurely to get something on his own terms and in his own way that God's going to give to him if he would just wait and let God do it in his own way. How that would have happened, we don't know, but God would have given it to him, and I certainly don't think this was 
the way and the approach to go about it. But again, he he desires the birthright. He's admirable that he wants it. He He's a man who wants the things of God. He wants to be a spiritual leader where notice, he, he, and he knows his brother's temperament. So he says, do you want the birthright? You're hungry, you're starving. He says, sell me your birthright. You want this pot of stew? You want something to eat? Sell me your birthright. He says, verse 32, Esau, here you see his temperament. Look, I'm about to die. <laughs> I'm so hungry, I'm about to starve to death here. What is this birthright to me? So Jacob said, okay, then swear to me. Give me an assurance, swear an oath. And he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate and drank and arose and just went his way. Thus Esau despised the birthright. Again, we see in Esau the temperament that he had. He despised the birthright. Esau was a man who is a perfect picture of the flesh. All He's a sensual man all he cares about is the here and the now. He just wants instant satisfaction, instant gratification. He has no desire in the things of God, no interest for, hey, how will things unfold long term? All he cares about is momentary satisfaction of his impulses. He has a craving. He's hungry. The guy sells his birthright. He sells the opportunity of something that's very valuable and important. Quite honestly, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, he sells it for one morsel of food, for a bowl of chili. <laughs> for a bowl of chili, this guy gives up something that has weighty, eternal value and importance just to satisfy a craving and a longing in his stomach. And it's a perfect picture of the flesh because that's the nature of the flesh. The, the nature of the flesh is here and now. Don't think about the eternal. Don't care about the spiritual. I want gratification now. I want satisfaction now. And, and willing to give up the things of God and separate from opportunities that could be lasting and eternal and only caring about momentary satisfaction. And the flesh, like Esau, wants to prompt people and prompt us, if we're not careful, to do that. To, to give away what's really valuable and important for momentary satisfaction. The Bible speaks of the momentary pleasures of sin, that sin's pleasurable for a season. And, and, and to convince us to satisfy some desire, you know, sexual indulgence for one night, or to get drunk one time, or to get high one time, or to just, you know, do something to indulge a desire that we have in our body and forsake something that's way more valuable. And Esau, it tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, let me close with this verse. Hebrews 12 says this, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, then this verse, For you know afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, Jacob was a man who cared about the things of God. He wanted the things of God. That's what the Spirit of God in us wants. Esau, picture of the flesh, here and now, temporary satisfaction, and yet he forsook the important, valuable things. And the Bible says, be careful. Don't live after the flesh. Live after the Spirit. Father, thank you for your word and, and for these sections of Scripture to be able to 
to just go through and to read them, to survey them, Lord, to let them speak the truth and the light of God into our lives. Lord, as we look at this, guard our hearts, we pray, from maybe some of the errors that we have a propensity to be inclined towards. Lord, we don't, Lord, like Esau, like Judas, we don't want to sell out, Lord, for some momentary cheap satisfaction and give up the wonderful things that we could have had instead. So help us guard our hearts, Lord, and help us to walk in your spirit and not gratify the lusts of our flesh. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.